This is R.J. Rushduni, Easy Chair Number 393, August the 31st, 1997. Tonight or this afternoon, we are here to interview or to listen to Dr. David Mitchell. In a moment, I'll tell you more about him. And Mark Rushduni. Douglas Murray, Carlo DiNota of Boston, and Sam Blumenfeld are here with us. Andrew Sandlin could not be with us this afternoon. We have with us, as I indicated, Dr. David Mitchell from Tasmania, which is now part of of Australia. Now, Tasmania has in itself a very important history which is different from that of Australia. It was settled by English and Scots of uh, a remarkable character. It became an important part of the empire. In 1902 it became a part of the uh, Dominion of Australia, although Dr. Mitchell tells me they continued to issue their own postage stamps, of, whom, of which I have a few, until 1912, I believe. Now, I'm going to ask Dr. Mitchell to begin with uh, an account of his own background, because it has been a distinguished one. It has included being the Attorney General of an African Kingdom and the uh, lawyer who helped win a landmark case in Australia establishing the freedom of Christian education. Dr. Mitchell, it's been a pleasure to have you with us here in Vallecito and California. I know you've been uh, all over the world on this trip, back in Africa and in Europe, as well as across the United States. Uh, tell us first about yourself and some of your accomplishments, and then about your most recent travels. Dr. Rashtuni, I like talking, as my friends and others well know. I don't very much like talking about myself, and uh, I avoid that as much as I possibly can. May I say that Tasmania became part of the Commonwealth of Australia on the 1st of January 1901. Oh, 1901. And I think it was 1910 that they stopped issuing their own stamps. But uh, Tasmania did send uh, Tasmanian, uh, Tasmanian troops to the Boer War, which was in 1902. They did not go as Australian troops, they went as Tasmanian troops. Uh, now, tell us uh, some of your <laughs> uh, work over the years, because you have been active in more than one area in your long career. 
Well, I've been privileged to uh, graduate from law school and be admitted to the bar in a number of Australian states, in England and Wales, in one or two different African countries. I started my professional career, I suppose, as an attorney, as the Americans would call it, in Hobart, Tasmania, in very much a general private practice, including some of what the Americans call trial work. I then joined the British Colonial Service and went to what was then called the Bechuan Land Protectorate and worked there in the district administration. I was there about three years. I then returned to Australia and joined the federal uh, civil service, federal public service. Had uh, joy in working in a number of places, including Darwin in the Northern Territory, where the Aborigines, of course, have uh, form a large percentage of the population. Subsequently, I was involved in the move to self-government and then independence of Papua New Guinea. I was involved with their constitutional development and the legal system for their independence. There was a change of government in Australia and I was uh, appointed to assist in the establishment of a legal aid service so that Australians would be able to obtain proper legal professional assistance without needing to pay for it so that it would be paid for by the taxpayer. When that service was established I was uh, appointed to the Kingdom of Lesotho as their Attorney General. Lesotho had once been a British protectorate in 1966 it became independent. In 1970 there was a major uprising which some would call a civil war and another in 1974. The government of Lesotho was running treason trials in relation to the 1974 rebellion when they asked the government of Australia to provide them with an Attorney General who would hopefully be able to bring a perspective of justice perceived by the world as not being politically motivated for those treason trials. In the upshot I personally had little to do with the treason trials but spent uh, just over two years as Attorney General of Lesotho, returned to Australia, went into what the Americans call theological seminary uh, and was uh, ordained as a, a minister and uh, subsequent to that I have been uh, privileged to be involved in, uh, as you've mentioned, uh, several 
education court cases in Australia where in the providence of the Lord we have been successful in each of them. Please, I am not saying that that will always continue, but up to this time the hand of the Lord has been much upon uh, those cases. Let me say something uh, (laughs) parenthetically about the Australian importance on the world scene. Our modern perspective is political, so that if we were to write a history of the 20th century, we would list as one of the great powers, for example, the Soviet Union. But when you look at things from a non-political point of view, you have to conclude something very different. Because food is life. And one of the things we forget is that, as one agricultural expert told me a few years back, of the five, uh, five of the six uh, net exporting countries of food in the world without without which the world could not survive because most of the world does not produce enough food to take care of itself. Five of the six have an English heritage, which is a very, very remarkable fact. One of those now, South Africa, is out of the picture. But I say this so that we do not look at history politically. We would have to say in terms of this that Australia is one of the great powers of the world because without Australia the food situation would be dramatically worse. So that uh, we, when we look at ourselves here in the United States, must say, we gained a great deal of our power on the world scene as a powerful exporter of food. One German economist has said that uh, one of the great mistakes of the United States was, beginning with World War One, to get involved in the world political scene when its greatness to that point had been its economic uh, asset. It was the great food exporter. So if we take a realistic view, we can see that Australia today is a major factor on the world scene. In fact, the political uh, center of the world is the Atlantic Basin, but the economic center is the Pacific Basin. Now, would you men like to ask any questions of uh, Dr. Mitchell? And please don't hesitate to take all the time you want to answer. Five, ten, fifteen minutes. I would like to make a comment first, if I may, about Australia as a food exporter. That is perfectly true. Australia has been and continues to be a major food exporter. However, present Australian policy wishes to see Australia as a diversified economy and much of the effort formerly put into food production now goes into manufacture and 
as I go to the supermarkets, I find food imported, imported from all parts of the world, fresh food and canned food, food that historically has been produced in Australia and exported. This is surprising. The same is true here. Now, uh, many things that are produced right in California are nonetheless exported from abroad. Mm. It's a political decision. Uh, not only so, there used to be a law that required fruits, for example, and vegetables coming from outside the country uh, to be labeled in the bin in the grocery as coming from, say, Chile or Mexico mm -hmm. or wherever. Mm. But that's been repealed. So you don't know where the fruit and vegetables are coming from. And one of the results is that uh, since at least one country not too far from us uses raw sewage to uh, irrigate its vegetables, it does mean a health problem in the United States. Uh, Dr. Mitchell was telling us last night about the apple growing situation in Tasmania and how the government, what the government has done to practically shut it down. Could you <laughs> relate that to us because it's fascinating since Tasmania was known as a great apple exporting uh, uh, province or, or state. Yes, uh, indeed there was a time when in Europe, particularly in Britain, you could be fairly sure that any apple you purchased came from Tasmania. Tasmania was known across the world as the Apple Isle. The apple industry still exists in Tasmania, but has nowhere near the prominence it once had. There was a multiplicity of problems that beset the apple industry. Probably the best known of them was the closure of the Suez Canal. Uh, after the Suez Canal was closed, every Tasmanian apple had to pass South African apples on its way to Europe, mm. which meant that uh, Tasmanian apples arrived in Europe after uh, the South African apples, uh, not nearly as fresh, and the journey was more expensive not to mention the labor production costs. So that had an effect, but also the, there was much government regulation of the apple industry in Tasmania, whereby the government determined to support the apple industry by controlling the, the, not only the export, but the purchase and sale uh, of all apples. So they purchased, for example, the apple, apple crops from the trees. Uh, while they were still on the trees, an inspector went and looked and paid the farmers uh, for the apples. But, of course, there may well be a hailstorm uh, after the inspector uh, has inspected the apples, or there might be a problem with the picking and thus there was a problem the government paying more than it should. They changed this so that the apples were to be picked first before they were inspected and purchased 
by the government's Apple and Pear Board. This created problems too, for the apples were supposed to be placed in a pile on the ground so the inspector could measure them. There is no need for me to explain the problems that would arise uh, with this kind of bureaucracy. Furthermore, they determined that all apples over a certain size needed to be retained for export. Now, there was a standard size apple case in which a box in which the apples were exported. They also determined that they needed to be a certain number of apples in every box. The result of this was that the large apples could not be sold on the local market and could not be exported. Uh, you will understand, without any further explanation from me, I know that this caused much problem for the apple industry. The problem was so great that the government decided that uh, they needed to do something about these poor, unfortunate apple growers who were suffering. So they subsidized the apple growers to pull out the apple trees hmm. and uh, the <coughs> apple production then, of course, was reduced dramatically. Tasmania is no longer the Apple Isle, although many apples are still grown there. On our recent visit to uh, Britain, one of my friends said, why is it that Tasmanian apples, when I was young, they used to be lovely apples. Now they're wizened up, uh, likely to be bad. I wouldn't buy a Tasmanian apple now. It just shows you what government bureaucracy can do to yes. ruin a perfectly good apple-growing business. It might be uh, worthwhile noting at this point that um, in Australia, the further south you go, the colder it is, because north you're closer to the equator, so that it's the reverse of... Uh, the American climate, the snows will be uh, in the southern part of Australia. Are they in Tasmania or do the waters there keep uh, the climate a little gentler? Tasmanian climate is remarkable. Tasmania is small, it is about the size of the state of Idaho. That is about the size of England, if you were to cut Yorkshire off and don't count Wales. Uh, and in that a small area, there are dramatic climatic differences. Where we live, it is uncommon for the temperature to, re to reach freezing, even at night, even in the middle of, middle of winter. Uh, but then it doesn't get very warm either. Uh, it's uh, uh, cool uh, in the winter and indeed in the summer. The east coast of Tasmania is dry and the west coast of Tasmania is wet. The winds blow uh, across the, the uh, Atlantic Ocean, missing South Africa as they come, across the Indian Ocean and hit the west coast of Tasmania with the clouds full of rain. Tasmania is mountainous. The mountains in Tasmania over the whole island rise to some 6,000 feet 
which is sufficient for the winds to drop their water on the mountains in the middle and on the west coast. Meaning that there is a, a dramatic climatic difference. Uh, the waters keep the coastal areas very temperate. The inland areas, even in such a small uh, state, uh, do receive snow and frosts and the temperatures go fairly low. On this trip you have been to Africa. What are situations like there where you once served as Attorney General? The Kingdom of Lesotho is still a lovely country. It is high country. Its lowest point is about 5,000 feet and it goes on up to about 12,000 feet. There is no point lower than 5,000 feet mm -hmm. and it is often said to be the country with the highest average height of any in the world. Mm -hmm. Since we were there, a lot of work has been done on roads. We had a, a 1.3 litre South African built Volkswagen car and we were able to go right up into the mountains and right across uh, the roof of Lesotho, often referred to as the roof of Africa. The roads were not good. Uh, I don't recommend it to any but an intrepid uh, traveller. But yes, the country is being opened up in all sorts of ways. One of the dramatic things that's happening in Lesotho is that there is water storage at Katsi, spelled K-A-T-S-E, that is to provide water and electricity for the whole of Johannesburg. Uh, what, what, was now, what is the Christian uh, situation there? How are the churches and Christians generally doing? I regret to report that they are not doing very well. The very faithful early missionaries brought uh, the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. They brought a full-orbed teaching of the scriptures. They were missionaries, interestingly, from the Paris Evangelical Mission. Oh. And uh, there was a genuine thrust of Christianity in the country. Uh, the Catholics were unhappy and they sent uh, Canadian French missionaries to reconvert um, the Africans. And to this day, some 54% of the Basutu, that's the people of Lesotho, would claim to be Catholic. And probably about 38% uh, Lesotho Evangelical Church, that is Paris Evangelical Mission. Unfortunately, at least from my perspective, the Lesotho Evangelical Church has uh, become socially conscious rather than spiritually conscious. The interest in the church has waned and attendance is now relatively small. That's too bad. Uh, how did you assess the future of those parts of Africa you saw? Was it a rather grim picture as some have painted? I would perceive South Africa as being 
sitting still on a powder keg. I was not there really long enough to make a proper assessment. I needed to rely on uh, comments from friends and others, but it seems to me that South Africa's problems are only beginning. Law and order is a matter of great, great concern. A home in which we stayed in Johannesburg has uh, around it uh, a 14 foot uh, security fence with barbed wire uh, twisted uh, around it, a gate, a security gate that it's, uh, I would think it would be almost impossible to get through, um, a bell on the gate so that if you want to go and visit these folk. You need to press the bell on the gate. Uh, they have a, a little video that they uh, can see who is at the gate and they then decide whether they're going to let you in or not. They have two dogs. They say it's absolutely essential to have dogs. The windows on their house, despite this perimeter security, the windows on their house are barred and their doors are barred and they have a very extensive burglar alarm system in the house which they need to turn on at night. That's a rather grim way to live. Mm, indeed. I'm afraid that is a condition now in too many countries, mm. non-African ones mm. as well. Perhaps I should say that a, a former member of the South African Parliament who I was talking to about these things said, oh David, these are only temporary. Look, the, the country is great. It's going very well and we will see peace and harmony before long in our great country, South Africa. I hope he's right rather than merely optimistic. So do I. So do I. What about the scene in Australia as far as the churches are concerned? I know it differs from one uh, state to another. It's not just a matter of differing from one state to another. It's from one congregation to another. Some congregations are growing and thriving. There is a growth I believe in the Pentecostal charismatic areas and there is also a growth in the Bible preaching uh, churches that some would call fundamentalist uh, churches. I wouldn't necessarily call those that are, are growing uh, fundamentalist. I would call them conservative gospel preaching uh, churches. Uh, uh, the mainline churches in general are losing people quickly. The mainline churches are having great deal of difficulty attracting men to the ministry. They are even having difficulty attracting women to the ministry. 
Uh, uh, David, is uh, Fabian socialism still the prominent political philosophy in uh, Australia, or have has it seen its day? Is it uh, is is it is the scene changing in favor of a more, uh, how would you say, a more uh, democratic uh, way of life? Many of my critics would say that I do not see this sort of thing clearly. Many of my critics would say that Fabian socialism has had its day in Australia, if ever there was a day at all. From my perspective, however, Fabian socialist, socialism is still predominant. Uh, in, there are two basic political parties in Australia. The Labour Party, which is avowedly socialist, and the Liberal and National Parties, which run in coalition, which claim to be a conservative, non-socialist, indeed anti-socialist. I perceive little difference between the two parties. From my perspective, I see Fabian socialism pervading both camps. I see. I know that in, in New Zealand, they say that there is a, a surgence of this Reaganomics, you know, of this, uh, that there is a group there talking in terms of, of the market economy a la Ronald Reagan. Did Ronald Reagan have any effect at all on, on Australia as far as the uh, economic thinking is concerned? No, I think, I think he had no effect at all. Uh, there are, of course, small groups that have uh, a different opinion from those of the uh, major political parties. So you don't have the kind of think tanks, the conservative think tanks that we have here in the United States, such as the Cato Institute and the Heritage Foundation and that sort of thing. There are conservative think tanks. Uh, one or two of the existing conservative think tanks, I would agree, are generally conservative. But they have very little impact on the uh, political scene in Australia. In general terms, however, the conservative think tanks, from my point of view, are not conservative think tanks at all, but uh, uh, Fabian socialist think tanks. One, uh, one last question I'd like to ask is, what about the situation of Australia uh, discarding the monarchy and becoming a republic? What, what are the ramifications of that? Well, that is a long story. Take uh, your time. <laughs> <laughs> Please. Uh, the Commonwealth of Australia Constitution is not a constitution in the sense that it is the fountainhead of right and wrong. The measure of right and wrong, at least theoretically, exists independently of the constitution. Thus, in the Australian constitution, you will find no Bill of Rights. There are many in Australia who are offended by the fact that there's no Bill of Rights in the Australian Constitution and wish to amend the Constitution in order to include some guarantees of individual freedoms and rights. Historically, the rights and freedoms of the people 
have been drawn from the scriptures. Mm-hmm. The idea of government at the time that the Australian colonies were settled and in 1828, which was said subsequently by the British Parliament to be the cut-off date, that is the date on which Australian law developed independently of British law. It was still the not only the theoretical but practical basis of law that the scripture established the measure of right and wrong. I know (coughs) that the scripture was not always applied and I know that when it was applied it was often misapplied but that was the basis of law and it has not changed since. How does this apply in Australia. Well, the link flows like this. At the coronation, the monarch of Britain is required to take an oath which includes words to this effect. Do you acknowledge that the only rule for life and government in your dominions is the word of God in the Old and New Testaments. The Governor-General of Australia is the Queen's representative or the monarch's representative for the purpose of maintaining the godly law in Australia. Under section 58 of the Australian Constitution the Governor-General has the power in his discretion to disallow any proposed legislation of the Parliament of Australia. Now that discretion is not to be exercised just on his personal views or personal feeling the idea when that provision was put in the Constitution was that the discretion would be to implement God's truth from the Scriptures. So if Australia were to become a republic and sever that tie with the monarchy, it would seem that they would sever the tie with the the laws of God Mm -hmm. it would seem to me that the people pressing for a republic are conspiring together to throw off what they perceive as the chains of the eternal one it would seem to me that they are seeking to establish a country a government a governmental structure that is not linked in any way to the scriptures or to the providence of the eternal God. As I read Psalm 2, I am delighted to find that the Lord God laughs at their proposals and endeavors. In other words, uh, uh, the monarchy uh, makes Australia a Christian nation. Yes, exactly so. 
the coinage uh, within the British uh, dominions as in Britain always reads when you have the image of the Queen Deo Gratia the whole foundation of rule is that and one uh, noted uh, liberal English uh, periodical which seemed to favor uh, abandoning the monarchy two three years ago when Prince Charles was so unpopular had one writer conclude it cannot be done without destroying the legal foundations of the realm. I think the coronation ceremony of uh, the monarch is very revealing. I have the full text in my library and it is very emphatic when uh, the monarch is handed a copy of the Bible by the moderator of the Church of uh, Scotland, by the way, and the uh, ceremony for Queen Elizabeth, they have to answer that this is indeed the law by which men and nations are to be ruled. So there would be great implications if the monarchy would have fallen in England itself. And there is a movement, yes, as you it know. It would be a, a legal <coughs> vacuum, a chaos. Mm -hmm. Yes, Carlo. Dr. Mitchell, I'm very interested in knowing your views of the American Constitution and uh, the American legal system. I don't claim to be an expert in American Constitution or American law at all. Uh, I however, in my ignorance, perceive the American Constitution as it at present stands to take the view that the measure of right and wrong is established by the people of America. Uh, I do not think this was the original intention. I perceive the original intention as having been that uh, uh, godliness would pervade uh, in this nation. As I look at the historic law reports uh, in the early, up to the, oh, up to the mid-1800s in the United States, I see that godliness uh, was the measure that was generally used in uh, giving judgment in the courts. I think that this was what was intended in the Constitution. But in my ignorance, I do not see that the Constitution with its Bill of Rights and uh, some of its other amendments, uh, the way that's at present being interpreted by the Supreme Court, the way that it is being interpreted by many people in the country, and the way that it's being interpreted in educational institutions recognises the godliness that uh, I think uh, was originally intended. Perhaps then, as uh, the learned people in America have a different view uh, of uh, the Constitution and what it intended, perhaps I'm wrong. Uh, Carl, it is an interesting fact that on the 50th anniversary of the Constitution and the great celebration in New York, the son of one president, John Adams, and himself a president, 
John Quincy Adams gave a very, very emotional address in which he struck out against the developing ideas of state sovereignty. Now, John Quincy Adams was not an evangelical believer, but all the same he said very passionately and eloquently that if the founding fathers were present, they would say of the doctrine of sovereignty, it is not in us, it is only in the Lord God of hosts. He gave a magnificent statement because whatever his personal uh, semi-Unitarian faith, he knew that the foundation was in terms of radically biblical presuppositions. Now, that address by John Quincy Adams went into grade school textbooks, and it was there for some years, and now it's forgotten. Most historians don't know its existence. Rush, you made a wonderful statement about the five of the six uh, exporting countries of food being yes. English, uh, that they have an English heritage. What is the explanation? Why, why, why did that produce this kind of highly productive economies? Well, uh, the person who told me that said it was a part of the reformed the Calvinistic heritage of those peoples, that uh, it left a character there. Now the sixth country is France, with a Huguenot background and at present a growing Huguenot revival. So uh, this man concluded there is a connection between faith and life. I see. Douglas? Well, I was going to ask Dr. Mitchell to give us a view of the educational system in Australia, uh, the homeschool situation as well as the state-run school system. Historically, uh, in Australia, schooling was started as a Christian thrust. Education was fairly quickly taken over by the governments of the various states of Australia and uh, in most states it became compulsory to send children between the ages of 6 and 16 to school. That is a very different principle from the principle that pertained in Britain or in the United States where I understand the requirement for compulsory education was for compulsory education. That is, parents were required to ensure that their children were educated. It is a different thing requiring the children be sent to school. The homeschool movement is growing in Australia. The situation of Christian schools and homeschooling in Australia is probably 10 or even 20 years behind the United States. Homeschoolers are still being harassed uh, by governments across the nation. There are prosecutions of homeschoolers on a fairly uh, frequent basis. 
I, I nearly said a regular basis, but there's nothing regular about it. It's uh, uh, random, uh, uh, no regularity involved uh, at all, but a frequency. Uh, homeschooling is becoming recognised as a possibility in all states of Australia, but the homeschoolers must register with the government obtain approval from the government to teach their children at home and be subject to government inspection. They must follow the government syllabus. Now many homeschoolers object to registration, many homeschoolers object to using the government syllabus and many homeschoolers object to the inspection and control of the government. This leads, of course, to a degree of friction. In the state of Queensland, uh, where homeschooling is thoroughly approved, it is thoroughly approved if the parent or person providing the homeschooling is a state-registered teacher. Otherwise, it's not uh, allowed. As far as... Uh, Christian schools are concerned. Christian schools have to apply for, according to the law, have to apply for government permission uh, to operate, have to submit themselves to government inspection, have to follow the government syllabus, and in some states can only recruit teachers who are government trained and approved. You will understand, therefore, that there is little difference in the education in a Christian school from the education in a government school. There are some remarkable and wonderful exceptions to this. There are some Christian schools that are very faithfully bringing education from a biblical perspective in every aspect of their training and every credit to them. There have been two or three major prosecutions of Christian schools that have uh, failed to register or maintain their registration. And as I commented earlier, I'm not sure whether uh, we were on tape at that stage, as I commented earlier in the providence of the eternal God, uh, two of those cases which have been enormously significant. The school has been found uh, not guilty. On each occasion it has been for technical reasons that the school has been found uh, not guilty and the time will come when the defence attorneys will not be able to find some technical reason and the uh, issue of the freedom to teach uh, children in accordance with the scriptures will be before the courts. As the courts operate at the moment, when that issue arises, I can only anticipate if there is no divine intervention, uh, as I believe there has been in the cases already uh, been heard, if there's no divine intervention, uh, there will be a precedent on the books against uh, uh, Christian uh, training in the schools.
One of the great landmark victories that Dr. Mitchell helped the schools gain with involved Peter Frogley, known to uh, more than a few of you here in the United States. Uh, Peter Frogley has been here at Vallecito more than once, and he studied for a time here in California. A very remarkable man. Mark, do you have any questions to ask? Yeah, would you uh, tell us a little bit about the status of the Christian schools in Australia? Um, you, I believe, said particularly that they are they are pretty much under government control. In every state of Australia, there is a requirement that schools must be approved by the government. To be approved by the government, they have to have uh, certain facilities in premises, in libraries, uh, in sports uh, activities, uh, in social interaction, and in teaching methods. The, there are a growing number of Christian schools in Australia, but, uh, yes, they are all um, subject to government control. Uh, some of them, some of them, I perceive little difference between the Christian school and the government school. Indeed, uh, sometimes I, I would feel that the government schools provide a superior uh, education, even in issues of morals and uh, dare I say, biblical understanding. Uh, I am not decrying in any way the enthusiasm or commitment of those who established the Christian schools. Uh, I too would wish to see Christian schools right across the country. I would wish to see those schools under uh, uh, biblical uh, supervision rather than under humanist government uh, supervision. What about the church scene in, in Australia? What's the outlook there? Is it becoming more uh, faithful to its confessions? I know there have been divisions there, as for example among the Presbyterians. You will already have perceived, sir, that I am somewhat cynical in many respects. I fear that the world is entering the church to a large extent yes. in Australia. There are many, even among those who would seek to be faithful to God's word, who take the view that the church, its activities, its worship services, its preaching and its practice should conform to the culture. Oh my. And uh, to me, this troubles me. Yes. Uh, but uh, uh, there are those who faithfully maintain the historic, uh, the historic faith and proclaim it vigorously and fearlessly. The, it is not possible, I think, 
to give an overall picture of the church in any short compass for there are sections of the church that are uh, political machines there are sections of the church that are social machines uh, and there are uh, parts of the church that are faithful to God's word uh, there are sections of the church that would seek to see godliness pervading the nation not just the church and its people but the whole nation the cause is by no means dead of course it's not um, there's no need for me to say why of course it's not uh, some people would see the scene as black uh, I uh, personally uh, have an optimistic view uh, of uh, of the future I have an optimistic view of the church I have an optimistic view uh, of the way that godly rule uh, will pervade the nation. It is important that the preachers of the gospel must maintain their faithfulness as some do. We have about three or four minutes left. Is there a last question any of you would like to ask? And a further word from you. Uh, would you like to make a statement, Dr. Mitchell, by way of conclusion? Uh, I would only like to uh, quote from the, the, the Psalms. There's a, uh, an interesting question. Uh, when the foundations are being destroyed, what shall the righteous do? If one looks on to the next verse, one will see that the righteous must not be distressed because the Lord God is on his throne. That's a good verse to close on because we need to recognize that since God is on the throne, we cannot be pessimistic. And uh, my impression is that those who are most active in the battle are also the most confident of victory because they are a part of the coming victory as you are. And we thank you for being with us. We appreciate what you are doing there and what you have done elsewhere over the years and we pray for God's richest blessing upon you thank you for being with us Dr. Mitchell and thank you all for listening and God bless you